Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you were once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are all destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to ex execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up 
in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present to you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, military metaphors are somewhat out of fashion. As a small boy, it won't surprise you, it was not that long after the Second War, 20 years or so, and numerous things referenced the military. You know, we even sang Onward Christian Soldiers quite unselfconsciously in church. Perhaps we ought to restart that. Since then, the British Army has depleted, and thankfully, few wars in Europe until recently. But without some understanding of combat and conflict, we will never really get to grips with some of the concepts in the New Testament or the Christian life. Think of it, Paul describes his co-workers as fellow soldiers. The New Testament describes the Christian life as battle. Christian leaders are to consider themselves as soldiers seeking to please the commanding officer. We're told to put on the full armor of God. And if we don't like the concept of war, which none of us should, then how about something altogether a little more palatable, the athletic arena? With the World Cup just passed, six nations now upon us, one-day internationals, Australia opens, new gym memberships, New Year's fitness drives, and all the rest of it. This little, little letter of Jude, which we have read in its entirety for the last four weeks now, begins with what is undeniably an image of contest, of sweat, of effort, and of toil, indeed of battle. Verse 3 of Jude's letter says this, halfway through, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I'm not a big fan of sharing Greek words from the pulpit, largely because I'm pretty useless at it anyway, and I think it's a bit sort of ostentatious and pompous. But I am told that the word comes from a word from which we get our word to agonize. The word agon speaks of a contest or a competition. It's used for warfare and fighting, for athletic contest and for laboring earnestly. Agonize. Intense struggle, effort. But though Jude begins by telling us that we are to agonize, to contend for the faith once for all time delivered, he doesn't actually tell us how to contend until right at the end of the letter. And so from verse 4 through to verse 19, all of his talk is about the seriousness of the enemy afflicting the church. If you've been with us for the last four weeks, you may have been saying, look, I've got the point, Jude, but come on, what does it look like to contend, to agonize, to fight, to engage? And this week, in just four verses, 
all of that is dealt with. So from verse 20 through 23, we read about R contending. But then you may find yourself saying, well, how can I possibly do this given the nature of the enemy? And then rather wonderfully, verse 24 and 25 are about his keeping. And that gives us our two points. Our contending, his keeping. Well, our contending, first of all, has to do, verses 20 and 21, with building work. And then, verses 22 and 23, rescue work. Contending looks like building, and contending looks like rescuing. Much of this is to do with what we are to do for ourselves and what we are to do for one another. So verse 20 speaks of the Bible and prayer. Verse 21 speaks of the present and the future. And then, as I say, 22 and 23 moves on to rescuing. So to build one another up in our most holy faith, look at it there, verse 20, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Do you know, it's not simply about something subjective and internal, as if I've got my little faith and you've got your little faith and we've got to try and build us ourselves up in our own individual, separate, and slightly subjective faith. Remember, right back at the beginning of the letter, in verse 3, he's talked about the faith, once for all time, delivered to the saints. So when he says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, you could almost say, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. But he says yours because it's now ours. We've appropriated it. We've taken it. We now trust the Lord Jesus. So Build one one another up in your most holy faith, this objective truth which is now yours. Jude is referring to the New Testament, to the word of the gospel, to Jesus Christ. And he urges us to build one another up in our most holy faith because all the way through the letter, remember, these secret agents who've infiltrated the church, they pervert, pervert the grace of God And they pervert the grace of God into lawlessness, sensuality. By contrast, the faith once for all time delivered produces men and women who seek to live a godly and pure life. So build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Do you know when you stop and think about it, in this world full of such perversion and ungodliness, what a wonderful thing to be walking, if you like, a different path of purity, goodness. And so we're to build one another up in our most holy faith, this most holy faith which is ours. And of course it is the word of God in the Bible that does the building. And so we're engaged in this building work right now. You may remember the Apostle Paul, I commit you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst the saints. This building work, I mean, that's what's going on now on a Sunday evening. This building work, that's what's going on when we meet midweek on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evening. This building work 
in our most holy faith is as we instruct one another in one-to-one Bible studies or as we send a text or as we message somebody or uh, contact them in one way or another to encourage them in their most holy faith with the truth of the Christian gospel. This building work is what goes on Sunday by Sunday after we meet over the road in St. Andrews as we talk about what we've just heard. Build one another up. Contend. So it's as if we're on a construction site. Maybe we should shift the image for a moment from the battlefield or the sports arena to the building development. With each and every one of us, with the responsibility for each and every one of us to build each and every one of us up. But notice from verse 20, the building work also involves prayer. Pray in the Holy Spirit. To pray in the Spirit has precisely nothing to do with what some people call praying in tongues. Tongues in the Bible are recognized human language. The Apostle Paul actually forbids unintelligible speech in church. Rather, to pray in the Spirit is the only way a person can pray. The Spirit brings us alive to God. The Spirit indwells every single Christian believer. The moment you become a Christian, you have the fullness of the Spirit to suggest there are some people with one amount of fullness of the Spirit and other people with another amount of the, uh, of the fullness of the Spirit is the most appalling thing to suggest. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. To pray in the Spirit is to come in confidence to God the Father through the work of God the Son by and in the power of God the Spirit. You pray our Father in heaven Genuinely, only the true Christian can pray it in the Spirit. You're praying to the Father in the Spirit. And you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, the Spirit has led you to see that you're not the center of the universe. He is. You're praying in the Spirit. His agenda, his concern. A word then about our prayer. Part of contending is praying. We seem, I think, to be quite good at building. You know, we're happy to meet together and study the word together. What about praying? We meet tomorrow evening as a church family to pray. There's so much to pray about. Will you be there? If not, why not? The last Monday of every month. I mean, I hope it's in your calendar as an absolute no-miss event because we're into building. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. It's part of contending. Verse 20 deals with the Bible and prayer. Verse 21 deals with the present and the future. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we're to keep ourselves in the love of Christ. Jesus says, remain in me. And in verse 24, we read that he is able to keep us. Here, we are told to keep ourselves. That's something to think about, isn't it? It seems that he guards those who keep themselves. The fact that he's going to keep us doesn't mean we can lay back on the lilo and not be engaged and concerned for keeping ourselves. So to remain in the love of God is to stay close to Jesus and close to the people of Jesus. To remain in his love is to stick with what he loves 
and to seek to please him in the way we live, to remain in the love of Jesus. Yes, it involves the emotion, but it is, it is as much obedience and remaining in the truth that we've heard of Jesus. What is it that has kept the secret agents from the love of Jesus? Well, sexual immorality and doctrinal shift. They've perverted the grace of God into sensuality. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You remain in the love of God. By remaining, if you like, on the tracks of his teaching about who Jesus is and living to please him. Don't pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Don't deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. To keep yourself in the love of God is both doctrinal and moral. It may be some today in danger of falling out of love with the Lord Jesus. It will all be different in the way we kind of express our love to him. Keep yourself in his love. Meditate and ponder on his love. Stay close to those who love him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Consider that. What are we doing to ensure that we remain in the love of God? But verse 21 doesn't only look at the present, it also looks at the future. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we are a people in waiting. We are looking forward, like the child looking forward to their birthday, or the lover longing for the proposal, or the worker hankering after a holiday or the weekend. We are waiting. And the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life, is the final consummation, if you like, of everything that you and I have been longing for if we are a people who remain in the love of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember verse 1? We're called by him, we're beloved by him, and we're kept for Jesus Christ. And so we've not only been summoned by God the Father for God the Son, we are not only loved by God the Father in God the Son, but we're also kept for him so that on the last day, when he returns, or if we die before, we will see him first face to face. And so we're a people in waiting, longing, like the child looking forward to Christmas, the lover longing for the proposal, the worker hankering for Friday at five o'clock. Never trust any Christian leader whose primary emphasis is on the present because we're a people in waiting. So here is the first part of our contending. It's a, a building work. Build yourself up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. But you'll notice that 
are contending. And it's not simply building work. It's also rescue work. And verses 22 and 23 begin to talk about the rescue work. This is what it looks like to contend for the faith once for all time delivered. And as I look out, I just hope and pray that we as a generation, when I say we, I use that in the loosest possible sense, but you as a generation become a generation who contend for the faith. If you want your children, your grandchildren, assuming you might have any, to have a Christian faith to believe in with all its blessings, we're going to have to contend. And part of contending is rescue work, building work and rescuing work. And it's there in verse 22 through 23, where three groups of people are given to whom we are, with whom we are to engage. Notice Jude has already dealt with the false teachers, and now it seems to be members of the congregation known to his readers, possibly other Christians further afield. And his encouragement is to persuading, snatching, and loving. I know you've been taught not to snatch. Well, this evening, all of that needs to be reversed. Verse 22. I say persuading because if you look at verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 22 is notoriously difficult to translate. It's one of a handful of places in the New Testament where the original text of the letter is not absolutely clear. You know, there are multiple ancient manuscripts of the New Testament gospels and letters. They were copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. So there are multiple by and large, the variances between them are minuscule. But here is one where it's quite a complex matter. And the old Revised Standard Version translates verse 22, convince some who doubt. Now, I'm not an expert on these things, but if we are to have mercy on those who doubt, surely it will involve at least some kind of persuasion so maybe somebody in a small group who's begun to doubt. Somebody you know about. Maybe, maybe somebody, perhaps somebody who you were involved on a, on a summer camp with or in your university Christian union. Uh, maybe a Christian from another church, somebody in a friendship group. Maybe people back home at the church you come from, if you come from a church back home. Persuade those who doubt. Then verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, the word used to snatch in the first century literature is to seize or grab by force. And I, I don't think Jude has in mind that St. Helen send out raiding parties into other churches to snatch in that sense. That is definitely not what's intended. So please don't get the wrong idea here. But it does give a sense of urgency, doesn't it? The image is perhaps of a mother with a young child who sees them wandering close to the edge of, uh, of a cliff. I was once uh, on a house party in a 25-acre site with three large ponds, and we completely lost one of the children. It wasn't one of mine, I'm glad to say, but this child was lost for about an hour. You can imagine the panic when we realized the child had gone as people raced around seeking to snatch. That's the level of emotional engagement that we have here, because we are snatching others out of the fire. The stakes are incredibly high. 
We're dealing with life and death and heaven and hell and eternity. Sometimes it will be important to be passionate and robust. And persuasion is not some sort of cold, ethereal, indifferent matter. We're not just reading out the results of the FA Cup third round. But it looks to me as if there's a third group there at the end of verse 23. I don't know what you think. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, it looks like these guys have actually wandered off and are wanting to come back. And there will be plenty of those. It may be you this evening. You know, the number of times people have come into St. Helens on a Sunday evening, they'd known something of the Lord Jesus way back, and then they've, something's prompted them. They had been wandering. How are we to treat them with mercy? The garment stained by flesh is the garment, undergarment, worn next to the skin, the vest, Stained by the flesh refers to the activities and behaviors that are impure that we've been talking about all through the series, the kind of sexual immorality. Elsewhere in the Bible, a similar image is used, and the stains are stains of bodily excretion, which I won't go into detail on right now. But it may be some of us this evening that we've been in a bad place, that we've wandered off, And you may well know people like that who want to come home, show mercy, but be cautious. Don't get dragged into the same lifestyle yourself. May I say as a church, we absolutely love it when we see people coming home. Here then is our contending work. And I use the word work deliberately and I speak of our work deliberately. The word is to agonize. So do you find it hard work? I mean, I know numbers of you are already involved in leading small groups and one-to-one studies. Do you find it hard work? I'm so glad. We're meant to contend. Notice, do you feel it's something of a battle? Yeah, quite right. That's precisely the word. Does it appear like a conflict? Are you agonizing? The Apostle Paul talks about agonizing again as if in childbirth for you about some people who are wandering. Do you find that's what Christian ministry feels like? Great, that's exactly right. But notice also it's active. He writes to this church, appealing to them that altogether they contend. So this isn't something that Luke here does single-handedly or that uh, the rector of St. Helens does single-handedly. Oh, he'll do my contending for me. No, this is something every single one of the congregation expected to be doing. As we build, as we rescue And notice that it's continuous. When was this letter written? Mid-60s AD? How many times does Jude refer to the kind of false teaching that has been going on in the centuries previous? Numerous. What has been going on since? 
many people infiltrating churches for the last 2,000 years and spreading false truth. Well, lies, actually. And so it's corporate, it's active, it's continuous. And so may I ask the question, you know, what are we doing? You know, what are you doing in terms of contending? Building up in the word? Is that something you're passionate about? Praying in the spirit? Is that something you're really engaged in? Present, keeping yourself in the love of God? Looking forward eagerly to the coming of Jesus, rescuing. May I say I can think of no better way to spend one's life. In just a moment, we're going to read about the glory of God. That is his weightiness. As I was preparing, I was reminded of a verse somewhere in the the Psalms which talks about all human endeavors going up in the scales, that is, they're weightless. God, in his glory, is weighty. What a worthwhile thing to spend our time doing. Devoting ourselves to those who have been called, are beloved, and are kept. Why would one want to do anything else? I mean, doesn't filling out a spreadsheet slightly pale into insignificance alongside it? Working on a contract, really? Well, how on earth can we do this? If it is such hard work, how can we do it? Isn't it wonderful that all the way through the letter, Jude is such a wonderful pastor of the church. All the way through, he's encouraging. And in verses 24 and 25, he does just that. They are two of the most quoted verses in the whole of the New Testament. But they are perfectly crafted to address the false teaching of those who have been infiltrating and to calm the fears. Verse 24, the sufficient power of God. Verse 25, the unrivaled position, his sufficient power. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Well, there is safety here, isn't there? He is able, and the word is to guard. We need to be thinking of the military standing guard over the palace, or the prison warder standing guard over her charge, or the lioness standing guard over her cubs. He is able to guard you. It's a much stronger word, actually, than the word earlier in verse 21. He is able to guard you. And he's able to guard you from stumbling. It's the word for a horse tripping. And so no matter how severe the doctrinal drift of the denomination, he will guard us. No matter how pernicious the perversion of the grace of God, he will guard us. No matter how ungodly the senior leadership of whatever denomination you're in, he will guard us. He will guard us. The safety of it. But notice then, he will present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Literally, before the face of his glory, we will stand without blemish. 
That's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? But I am so dirty. I have failed so badly. I have so much blemish. The work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, carrying God's judgment at our failure, washing us clean, means that he is able. We're kept for him and he is able to have us stand before the face of his glory, blameless. Do you know, because of the work of Jesus Christ, God sees you as perfect. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God sees you as perfect. And he is therefore able to present you before his face, standing. Not like a courtier tiptoeing in and out of his presence, not like an estranged family member wondering whether we'll get received, not hokey-cokey Christians, in, out, in, out, shake it all about. He is able to present us blameless, secure, assured. He will guard us with great joy. No more tears, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more pain. He is able to present us on that day, blameless, with great joy. And he's able to do it because of his unrivaled position. Notice, to the only God. Remember, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, to the only God. And to the only God, our Savior. Remember, our common salvation from verses 3 and 4, uh, 2 and 3. Our only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. His unrivaled position. His glory is his weightiness. His majesty is his absolute supremacy. His dominion is the extent of his rule, which stretches from eternity past to eternity future, from one end of the globe to the other, his dominion and his authority is a power word, but good power, kind power, loving power, power clothed in humility and gentleness. And so here is our contending, and here is his keeping. And if I might ask, what is it that we're contending for? Let me lead us in prayer. Gracious Father, we praise you for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ his death and resurrection. And we praise you for the faith once for all time delivered to us, your church. We thank you that we have your wonderful truth and that therefore we can know that we are called, beloved, kept, your grace, mercy, and peace extending to us. We pray that you would help each one of us to contend 
with a sense of urgency and seriousness, as if our life depends upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple of technical questions to start, William. Firstly, do I need to read the Enoch and Michael text in order to understand the Bible? No, I don't think you do. I think, I mean, uh, I I think the fact that Jude quotes them and basically tells you what he's quoting them for, it's a little bit like, you know, me using an illustration. It's slightly different, but me using an illustration that you're not familiar with. You don't have to then go and watch the whole film or something like that. He's taking something that's contemporary and would have been understood by his Jewish audience living in Jerusalem, would have been common knowledge, but the fact that he then takes it and uses it as an illustration of a point means that the point he is making is the truth that we need to meditate on and not the whole backdrop of what he's speaking about. That's helpful. Thank you. Good question. Thank you. Why is the unclear translation in verse 22 due to a copious error not problematic to the infallibility of God's word? If God is sovereign enough to have had his word spoken and recorded, why is he not sovereign enough to Mm. preserve it? Yeah, thank you very much. Well, I mean, the first thing is we don't believe uh, when it comes to, we do believe in the infallibility of God's word, but we don't believe in the infallibility of um, the, the second, third, fourth, fifth copies. What we do believe is in the, um, the infallibility of the original um, texts. Now, um, uh, the, the other question is a point about sovereignty, and the answer is I don't really know. It's just it has been translated by human beings, um, and not translated, it's been copied by human beings. But honestly, um, well, I, I, meant, I thought I might bring my Greek New Testament down here, and to just if anybody was interested, you can, I'll go and get it and you can have a look at it. And the number of issues where it's an issue, a, a minuscule, and the vast majority of them are recorded with a footnote. You look through your New Testament, you'll see there are a tiny number of New Testament, little, and they're mostly not significant for the meaning of the text. This is, and it's to do with the word mercy uh, or um, convincing. And they're very close. They're just three letter difference. And um, anyway, copies, one did one, one did the other. But to be honest, I don't think it's that far apart because if you're going to have mercy on somebody who doubts, you're going to have to persuade them. And so in a sense, yeah. But we don't actually, on the infallibility of Scripture, we don't believe in the infallibility of the, the copy of the copy of the copy, although we believe, as you compare them, they are an accurate record of the original transcript. Okay. Thank you. You've spoken a lot about the Church of England and same-sex marriage. How doesn't Helen support those who struggle with same-sex attraction? Well, I hope we love you. I hope we seek to build you up. I hope we pray for you. I mean, those I know who struggle in the area of temptation to same-sex attraction, I pray for, you know, regularly, I mean regularly, in the congregation here um, and uh, across the different congregations. Uh, We do have a group that people who have struggles in this particular area, because of the acuteness of the issues at the moment, it keeps getting raised and raised and raised and raised. We do have a group where they can meet, and if you'd like to know more about that, please ask Luke about it. And that's been really very, very helpful. But the primary way we support is like any other Christian struggling with any other area of temptation. 
through our small groups, through our friendships with one another, by welcoming people and, and loving them, loving you. I mean, that's, you know, because we're all struggling in one way or another, heterosexual, uh, uh, tempted with heterosexual sin, tempted with homosexual sin. We're all struggling. So, yeah. On that theme. Yeah. What does sexual immorality involve apart from sex before marriage? So when dating, where is the line? Well, I think sexual immorality, the word is porneia, and um, it's the word actually from which we get obviously pornography. Um, it, given that marriage is the only place for an exp- an, a, a, a godly expression of sexual activity, anything outside of marriage in terms of sexual activity is porneia. And uh, there's a a great guy called um, uh, Noland. I can't remember his first name. Nor can you. Okay. Uh, And he's written an outstanding uh, long piece on Pornea and its uh, its background through the Old Testament texts as well. Um, And actually, it stands to reason. If the only place, safe place, and good place for sexual expression is between one man and one woman in a lifelong exclusive relationship, um, then anything outside of that is pornea. And whether it's visual or virtual or verbal, any flirting, any encouragement to sex, any um, internet pornography, anything, visual, verbal, virtual, physical. And so the that kind of question, it's a good question to ask. What, what I find I get very nervous about is kind of what's allowed. Because once you get into that kind of territory, it's kind of how close to the water can I get? And we're told to flee sexual immorality, not to see how close we can get to it. And if you're fleeing, you won't be asking what's allowed. And so we're to treat any woman who we are not married to as we would treat our sister. That's what the Bible tells us. So I hope that's true for us as a congregation. I remember a 13-year-old coming to our youth group and going home and saying to her parents uh, and to her friend who brought her, it's wonderful because the men um, are not predatory. What a wonderful thing. How different the church is to the world. And we are to flee sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is anything visual, verbal, virtual, by way of stimulation of somebody to whom I am not in a lifelong exclusive relationship. Now, we've all failed, and we're all failures, and isn't it wonderful that the Lord Jesus presents us without blemish? Um, But we need to repent, and there'll be a number of people for sure, you know, who are close to the fire on this, and we want to snatch you out of the fire, because it's an eternal matter. What will we do as a result of the C of E recent rulings? Leave the Church of England or further broken partnership? Thank you. Well, we're already in broken partnership with the House of Bishops. It's important to realize that the Church of England is a denomination. They may not like to be called that, but that's what they are. Denominations don't exist in the Bible. You do have groups of churches working together for stuff. Um, Now, we have... You can imagine we've been thinking about this a great deal. There'll be more on this tomorrow at the prayer supper, which I hope you'll be at. I can't see any reason why you wouldn't, but um, especially after tonight's sermon. But uh, anyway, you'll hear more about it tomorrow. 
Um, we will talk about short-term and long-term. Short-term is between now and July. And between now and July, we're encouraging every single church, church leader, encourage all of your friends to encourage their church leaders, if they're in Church of England churches, to exert match maximum pressure to say, this cannot happen. And if you are determined that it should happen, you must create a separate entity into which churches like St. Helens can continue to exercise ministry in our buildings. Uh, longer term is post-July, but we've got quite enough to think about between now and July, and I'm not going to talk about longer term until July. Okay, but there are plans, people are working, there are groups, there is a group working on post-July, but nothing's going to happen in a hurry, and I think it's most important that we give, actually, the House of Bishops an opportunity to repent of the wickedness that they have um, headed the direction they're heading in, the wicked direction they're heading in, to repent of it and to turn. Um, and then post-July, there will be much more vigorous action. You've said the prayer meeting's very important. Let's say I can only make one church event this week, RML or prayer supper, which would I go to? Well, I think this week, I would say, we'll cut you some slack. But I think in future weeks, I would say, look, you know, we're serious about this. This matters. You know, you probably go out for a social engagement or something. Get it in the calendar. Make it an absolute three-line event. I'm always at the prayer meeting. It's wonderful. To, it's such a help to get it in the calendar that it's absolutely a no-miss event. Because then it's non... You know, you just say, I'm, I'm really sorry I'm busy that night. Do you know, I say that often on a Sunday to friends when they ask me the things. Really sorry I'm busy. Um, and I think we should all do that. Tonight, for example, I could have been off doing something else. No, I'm sorry, I'm busy. <laughs> sorry, I'm busy. Whack it in there. Get it in there. Make sure it's a no-miss event. And Christians have done that all through the centuries. You know, nobody's asking anybody to do anything unusual here. This is totally normal Christian behavior. And I think, you know, it, it's something, I think is a real sadness. that if You think, what, there are 300 of us here? You know, we should be, you know, there were 400 here this morning. You know, there should be 700 there tomorrow. I mean, some people have got children, so the husband comes and the wife stays, or the wife comes and the husband stays, but, you know. Should we treat false teachers differently to those who are believing false teaching, i.e., when do we say, where is you, versus snatching out of the Yeah, fire? that's a really important very, very important issue. Just have a look back uh, in Jude. I hope you've got Jude open still. Um, let me give you a page number because otherwise we could struggle. Two, one, two, three, three. One, two, three, three, if you're in church Bible. Just have a look at verse 11 of Jude. Somebody find Luke a Bible. That'd be helpful. Good. Jude 11. This, the, I, when I saw it, I thought, well, that's a really interesting, isn't it? Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned, past tense, themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. He's talking about the these people of verse 10, but he's talking about them in the past tense. So clearly they have taken a deliberate decision that has set them on a course that they are not going to shift from. They walked. And so there comes a point, I mean when um, a false teacher 
as it were, incarnates. That is, they, they make plain through speech and action their false teaching. You can reason with them, but there comes a point where they're set in their way. And then we are told in the Bible to avoid them. Repeatedly, we're told to avoid such people. Don't get entangled with them. And that's the issue with the Church of England and the, um, the false teachers in the House of Bishops. You know, how are we going to avoid them? That's why we broke partnership with them. Um, because we're seeking to say, no, we avoid them. We've got nothing to do with them. So the Bishop of London is not welcome in this church. And I've told her so, and she won't be allowed here. Um, and the law of the Church of England is because I'm the rector, then she can't come here. Um, and if she were to come here, I hope I would ask you all to stay away that evening and not come to church, meet somewhere else. So, so you know, that's with the false teacher. So when, now, not everybody you meet is going to be teaching their false doctrine. And so um, they may be somebody in a congregation. That's where I think the kind of sophistication and nuance of verse 22 and 23 is so helpful. The three groups persuade those who doubt. So you'll meet somebody at some Christian thing or other, or you'll know somebody who actually needs persuading, maybe in your own group or something like that. Save others, that's a bit more vigorous. You're actually going to have to plead with them. You know, please don't get involved. Stay away. And then there are others who are going to be coming back. So I think if I was to say one of the mistakes we make when we come across kind of false teaching is we treat everybody as if they're one of the false teachers. And we've got to be subtle and thoughtful and loving, actually, in the way we handle these things. Um, in Galatians, the, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he speaks of the false teachers, and he says, I wish they would emasculate themselves. That's worse than castration, but we won't talk about that anymore. Um, in other words, you know, that over and woe to them. Then he talks about Peter the apostle, who's got it wrong, and he clearly had an impassioned encounter with him where he pleaded with him to change, and Peter changed. And then he talks about the, 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 the Galatian believers themselves in the church, and he says, um, uh, I, I plead with you, I agonize again with the pains of childbirth over you. Um, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So you know, you head off to some convention or something like that, and, and you meet Christians who hold a slightly different view and call themselves Christians, and you want to be reasoning with them, pleading with them. The false teacher, avoid them. Do you see the difference? I think there is a difference, and I think we get into mistake sometimes where we treat everybody on the flat. Mm -hmm. The false teachers Jude speaks of seem to be within the church congregation. We've mainly applied on a denominational level do we also need to consider how false teachers might come into our congregation? So the question is to do with the false teachers appearing to be within the congregation. Well, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. So I've often talked in the series about the congregation. I know that. But is this a round robin letter? Frequently the letters were. And um, I don't think there's evidence that it is necessarily only written to one church congregation. Even the letter to the Colossians, for example, it, you know, it probably did the rounds of the house churches in Colossae. Um, and so uh, I, I don't think I would, um, I may have 
given the impression from time to time that it's just within the congregation, but I think it's more wide than that myself. Thank you. Lots of application was rightly towards the Church of England. Are there other areas we should be cautious about? Absolutely. Any area where teachers are denying the only Master and Lord Jesus Christ and perverting the grace of God into sensuality. So I'm listening to a podcast at the moment on um, Hillsong, New York. You know, I'm afraid they perverted the grace of God into sensuality. And the writing was on the wall long before the report came out. Long before. Um, don't listen to it. It's just too God, godless and depressing to listen to. But I thought it's worth just hearing what's gone on in New York. Um, but the writing was on the wall long before anybody made a report, just from the nature of the kind of event that was being laid on that was so worldly. And so I think, yes, there are all sorts of areas, you know, where you wouldn't just be looking at the Church of England. And we need to be considering ourselves. And that's why we need to be building one another, another up in our most holy faith, because you won't be able to spot false teachers and false teaching as it begins to emerge in churches if you haven't given yourself to contending for the faith once delivered for the, to the saints, which is a matter of studying, serious study of the scriptures. So yesterday evening, I went to visit my predecessor here, Dick Lucas. He is now 97. You know, you never come away from visiting Dick without feeling deeply encouraged. And we were talking about a movement that began in churches here in London and overseas in about the 1970s and early 80s. And how on earth did it get hold? And why were people so foolish as to fall for it? This was the nature of our conversation. And um, he, he said, we said together, it's because they never really took seriously the study of scriptures. What they were interested in was experience. And they wanted whatever the latest experience was going to happen. And you can chart it through. This experience hit London. And then that experience hit London. They never really seriously got into the study of the scriptures, which is what contending for the faith involves. And if, you know, when you find people going to churches where they're not seriously getting into the scriptures, which is where God speaks to us and how his spirit builds us up, then you want to encourage them to find a church where they are taking the scriptures with the utmost seriousness. I don't mean being kind of mopey and dull and kind of only bookish, but finding life and joy and truth in the scriptures. And that is hard work, hence contending. It involves, you know, and you find coming to RML hard work. I'm sure you, I hope you do your preparation before you come so you can encourage others and build them up. If you don't, then you won't be a huge amount of help, but I hope you do do your preparation, read the passage, try and work through the passage yourself. You're coming with a purpose to build people up. That's hard work. That is hard work. It means setting aside an hour or two, you know, that morning or before you get to work or the night before to get into it and to build one another up in the most holy faith. And then you will find you learn so much. But you know, if it's just, oh, well, I might turn up if I feel like it, you know, all the rest of it, well, that won't be much use. Oh, sorry, it's good that you come, but you know, you know. 
Um, the contending is all good stuff, but how is it the perfect solution to the problem of false teachers and their teaching? Yes, I'm not quite sure what the question, what do you think the questioner is? The contending is all good stuff. I mean, well done, that Jude will feel pleased that you said that. <laughs> good, good, well done, well done Jude. Good stuff. Yes, the contending is all good stuff, but how is it the perfect solution to the false teachers? What would you say to that, Luke? Well, Jude thinks it's the perfect solution to the false Jude. teachers. Jude, <laughs> well done. Good answer. That's exactly what I should have said. Jude seemed to think it was a good solution. Yeah, absolutely right. Also, there are other places where this is taught. But remember, yeah, remember, he's also got us very clear in the last three weeks on the severity of false teaching. And it's, you know, it's only, it's only, what is it, four verses. It's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? It's the, the utmost seriousness about the word of God and seeking to build one another up. The utmost seriousness about praying together. The utmost seriousness about walking in the love of Jesus Christ, which is as much an objective thing as it is a subjective thing. It's walking in the commandments and the truth of Jesus. Utmost seriousness utmost seriousness about looking forward to his return. I mean, that's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? You can, I, do you know, one of the reasons I absolutely love the Bible, um, there are many, but it's so, God is so precise and just brilliant. The fact that you can basically sum it up in four verses like that, and we could have talked about each one of those verses for a full 25-minute sermon. You know, it's, it's, it is remarkable how much there is there for us. You say that outlining a contract should pale into comparison, should pale in comparison, but does that mean that the work we do is insignificant or should we not be working hard in our jobs for the Lord? Well, that's a very good question. Of course, we should be working hard for the Lord because God tells us to in the Bible. So if he or Ephesians, for that matter. Uh, Ephesians would do very nicely. But we'll go to Colossians if you'd rather. But <laughs> Thank you very much. Where have I got to? I won't be able to find it now. I'm, uh, yes. Ephesians chapter 6. Thanks, Simpo. That's great. Well done. <clears throat> Anyone with Simpo, turn to Colossians. Otherwise, we're in Ephesians 6. Slaves... That's uh, everybody working in the city, basically. Obey your earthly masters <laughs> with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service from God. So, yes, absolutely, absolutely. You've got to eat, and um, you should work hard. Um, absolutely, very good. But relative to the... So that's your second job. Let me put it like that. So do your second job well. Your first job is serving the Lord. And so all of us here have got, I mean, this is not, I'm stealing this from my dear friend Carl Matai. All of us have got two jobs. Uh, most of us here in this room have got two jobs. Your first job is to serve the Lord and to make the gospel known wherever you find yourself. Um, to declare Jesus Christ in your workplace fearlessly and boldly and courageously. Your second job may be filling out spreadsheets. And really, 
Of course, you should do that well, yes, but relative to building, being involved in God's eternal building project, it just does not compare, I'm afraid. While you're there, as you focus on your first job, making Jesus known, pleasing him by working hard, there's real joy in that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. But the actual filling out of a spreadsheet, to be honest, it doesn't matter terribly whether you're doing that or stacking shelves in Sainsbury's. And if you find that difficult to take, it's probably because we're so snobbish about work and we somehow think that stacking shelves in Sainsbury's is somehow lesser than filling out a law contract, but then, you know, that's just snobbishness. It's quite surprising that after all Jude has said about the false teachers, he ends up by calling us to this building and rescue work. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that's his intention when he starts. So he starts by saying contending. I think, actually, the, personally, I find the surprise the other way around. I mean, I'd lo- it's a really interesting perspective, that, because personally, and I'd love to talk to whoever asked that question, I found the surprise the other way around. He says contend. And like I said, you know, I'm thinking, well, come on, then how do we get into it? But he seems much more concerned that we'll be too naive to realize how serious the issue is. So verses 4 through uh, 19 are all about the seriousness of the issue. And I sort of think, well, why didn't you give us that many? Well, you know, he, he knew what he was doing. And actually, we can be absolutely terrified by the seriousness of the issue, or we can be half asleep about the seriousness of the issue, which is how we've got to where we've got to with the mainline denominations, because people have been half asleep, and a few people are just beginning to work out, wake, wake up. Do you know, I had conversations with people back in 2013. Oh, no, we couldn't possibly. And then now, they've now begun to wake up. We couldn't possibly speak against the bishops and what have you and what they're saying. They're saying exactly the same thing then. We couldn't possibly speak against it because they're giving us so many wonderful buildings. You just think, I mean, I won't tell you what I said at the time. It was not inappropriate, but I don't think you need to know. (laughs) But it is, I mean, that's pathetic, isn't it? And I hope you'll never be half asleep like that or you know, so naive as that, uh, because we're dealing with the eternal reality of heaven and hell. And if you can just say, oh, well, they're not giving us, they're giving us so many buildings, we must carry on being nice. No, you're being bribed. And it's exactly what Jude talks about when he talks about um, giving favor in order to gain advantage. Uh, And these guys, I mean, they claim to be one of the most spirit-filled churches in the country. And I said, if, I said, you call yourself spirit-filled and you're not prepared to call out false teachers, that's not the spirit of the Bible. It isn't. So. Someone's asked, I have a friend who, is, who has walked away from the truth. Mm. I've tried with everything I have to snatch them out of the fire, but they're walking further away. What advice would you give in the face of this discouragement? Just keep praying. Keep praying. Pray for them. I mean, you know, I know it is incredibly hard, isn't it? Because we all have, will have friends like that. And you just, it's so sad. And it really, you know, makes, it gives you such pain. 
but you see people. I mean, I, I was talking about John Newton yesterday in here, and, you know, John Newton, you know, he wandered. Boy, did he wander. Brought up by a Christian mother. Mother died when he was seven. Went completely off the rails. You remember, he wrote uh, Amazing Grace, but before that, he'd been thrown off slave ships for drunkenness and abuse of the slaves, the female slaves particularly. Now, you have to be pretty, pretty far gone to be thrown off a slave ship for abuse of the, uh, the slaves. So, you know, he was just an absolute shocker. His mother had prayed. And he's, I haven't got the quote with me now because it's not here, but um, he, uh, he, he wrote in one of his letters that he has no doubt but that any effectiveness that he has this day is a result of my mother's earnest prayers. Now, that was only seven years' worth of prayer. My lovely sister, who you don't know, she used to come here, but she was converted as we lowered my grandfather's coffin into the grave. That's the moment she was converted and to, to, to the Christian faith. You think he'd prayed all her life. She would have been 25. Just keep praying. Be patient and pray. Pray in the Spirit. But there may come a point, I mean, there are people who I've stopped sort of reasoning with because I've reasoned, I've sought to snatch, you know, and actually, now just pray. Remember them before the Lord. Is contending only something we do within the church or with other Christians doubting, or something we can do in the workplace and with unbelievers too? Well, isn't that interesting? I mean, I think, so it's in, what is interesting is in 2 Timothy where you've got a similar sort of situation and Paul is writing to Timothy. And in, just turn to it, 2 Timothy chapter 4, would you? Um, it's on page 1199. Here we go, verse 5. I was about to ask Simpo for which verse it was there for a second. I couldn't <laughs> find the verse, Simpo. So... 2 Timothy 4, 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So that's interesting, isn't it? So we mustn't take Jude as the only piece on what to do with false teachers. You know, we are told by Paul in uh, Romans 16, those of you studying Romans, you know, Romans is about getting these guys to be co-evangelists and to support Paul in his mission to Spain. So that's what he's aiming. He's getting, getting us on the, on the wagon evangelistically. And uh, in chapter 16, verse 17, he suddenly says about the false teachers who are dividing the church, avoid them. So there's another thing. So Jude isn't the only piece on, um, and what he says, did I, did I read it just now? Do the work of an evangelist. So there's Paul's answer to Timothy. There's a lot about avoidance. There's a lot about false teachers in 2 Timothy. It's a case, in that case, of you know, severe meltdown of Christian truth in a region, Ephesus in that area. And Paul says, keep preaching the gospel. Do the work of evangelists. So that's another aspect of contending. Jude doesn't, I mean, unless I've missed something, I'd love somebody to tell me if I've missed something. I don't think Jude particularly dwells on that. I mean, you'd have to read into it build yourselves up in your most holy faith, by which he means, you know, reach out to others. But I don't think he actually says that. So, so you know, it's there, but not in Jude. Thank you. I think this will have to be our last question. Sorry if we didn't get to your question, but William might be around for a little bit afterwards, or do chat to those around you.
about your question, and maybe we'd do it open and see and where you can get to yourselves as well. But just for now, um, how do we apply the urgency of Jude Call to Build while not falling to saying yes to every Christian ministry opportunity? Ah, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. What a great question. Um, I think you could talk to your friends. Am I doing too much? Um, I think there can be a danger that we are kind of so over-engaged that we, you know, fall over. Um, so you need to develop for yourself a proper nourishing pattern. I think that's the, 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 what I want us to encourage us to do. Um, and see what, I mean, we'll all, the other thing is everyone in this room is different. And this is immensely important because so many of us spend our life looking sideways rather than looking upwards. We're, we're not, you know, nobody's there sitting thinking, ha ha, yes, tick, they were here at this, 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 and this. And we shouldn't be thinking, well, my friend over there is involved. We're all different. We've got different circumstances, different situations, different responsibilities, and so forth. But we need to find something for us that is put in place some key non-negotiables. I've mentioned a couple this evening. Yeah, Sunday night's a great non-negotiable, isn't it? Not, not difficult to be here. Put in place the, mid, the midweek study. Prayer meeting once a month, whatever it is. And then, you know, now, what, what else might I want to do around that? Um, but it'll all be different. And you may be flat out engaged. You know, I, when I was in the army, I used to commute up here to come to church because all my friends were in London. And I was, you know, way out in the sticks. But I wanted to bring my friends to church on a Sunday night. And they were all here, so we'd all come to, come to church here and then go back off to whatever. And... Um, you know, people were saying to me, well, why aren't you at RML? Well, I was somewhere in the middle of a ditch somewhere, you know. <laughs> I won't tell you what was going on, but anyway, all sorts of things like that. So, you know, we, we're not, we're all different. We've got different responsibilities. And, you know, you students, you'll, some of you will be apt, some, and probably students over here as well, but bulk of you, you know, you've probably got responsibility in your Christian union. You're about to go off and do missions this coming week or in a fortnight or whatever it is. You know, you want to be flat out there. Well, so we're all, we want to be mature, thoughtful, not to be judging one another, but each one of us personally. And then you can talk it through with a friend and say, look, yeah, what do you think? Do you think I'm just a complete slacker? You know. Thanks, William. Do you mind letting us in prayer? I would prayer. absolutely love to do that. We thank you again, our Father, for the faith once for all delivered. We thank you for your perfect word and thank you that we have it and can be built up by you speaking to us. We thank you we have the privilege of being able to pray to you. And um, Lord, we thank you for those who have over the centuries contended for the faith. And we praise you for them that we have this wonderful, wonderful truth because people fought for it, died for it. And we pray that in our generation, we would be those who contend for the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. We look forward to that well done, good and faithful servant. We wait for your mercy 
and eternal life. We long for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.